All right. Taking your guys' questions, uh, trying to help you to learn to think biblically about everything. At least that's my goal for myself, and you're joining me on that journey. I am Pastor Mike Winger. This is the Friday live stream where I take 20 questions from the audience. You're loading your questions in the live chat right now. If this is your first time, you want to put a cue at the beginning of your comment and then hope that it gets through. We have a supply and demand issue going on right now, which is um, the supply is one of me and about an hour to answer about 20 questions, and the demand is a lot more than 20. So I do apologize for those who have been trying to get questions through and you feel like it never gets through. That's not nothing. You're not being picked on. It's just we get a lot of questions. So I'm sorry. It's, it's unfortunate reality. But <clears throat> welcome to a very special um, a very special day. This is the day where my YouTube channel, Mike Winger, uh, has just hit 200,000 subscribers, which really blows my mind. 200,000 subscribers. I'm I'm, I'm surprised. You know, when I first started doing this, my goal, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk for a moment before I get in. You can just skip ahead if you're watching the replay and you don't care. There's going to be timestamps down below to every question so you could find exactly the things you care about and get answers you're interested in because I'm not trying to take your time. I'm trying to bring you a blessing. So um, before I get into the first question, which I've pre-selected here, I want to just say I, I when I first started doing YouTube stuff, I thought, um, and this might be an inspiration to somebody else, I thought to myself, <clears throat> who am I? <laughs> What are the chances that me making content online is going to get any sort of traction? And I realized the chances were slim, but I also thought, you know, you don't change the world unless you try, um, generally speaking. And I decided a long time ago just to like live as if my life could change the world, even if it didn't make sense how. And um, and that, that attitude like did change <clears throat> my perspective on things and made me more willing to try stuff. And along with feeling like the Lord had really was telling me to do something like along these lines. And then just a long, long, long stage of perseverance. I didn't <clears throat> get these subscribers or the, the traction of the channel over any short period of time. It's been years and years. And it may seem to you like, oh, it's easy. <laughs> uh, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time, but it's absolutely worth it. I had hoped that I would hit 20,000 subs one day. And I thought if I ever got to 20, I would be like, man, that was such a worthwhile ministry and all the work and the many hours was totally worth it. And what an amazing ability to reach people. And now we're 10 times that, and I don't even, I'm just, I pinch myself. I pinch myself. So <clears throat> to celebrate today, here I am with my uh, cup of cup of coffee with some uh, heavy cream and sugar in it. If you've never had coffee with heavy cream in it, don't do it often, but every once in a while, it's pretty good. It's pretty tasty. And here's the first question. <clears throat> so my first question, the first issue I wanted to cover today is the topic of um, what led... What, what do, in my opinion, what do I think led to the charismatic conundrum of 2020 where large numbers of false prophecies were being spewed out of very well-known and very well-respected, or at least people who have a lot of followers online. And so we see it all over online. If you don't know, if you've been living under a rock and you don't know that in the in the charismatic community, there is a branch. It's not the whole group, but there's a branch within who are very, very, in my mind, reckless with prophecy. And they've been prophesying Trump's reelection. They were prophesying the end of COVID-19. They were prophesying all these things. And to a man, I mean, like massive delusion. This is, we can't overstate this massive. This wasn't a little error. It wasn't one person getting things wrong. It was like a huge number of supposed prophets all in agreement and all wrong. 
what led to this. And I'm going to talk about one issue that may have led to this. Um, there's several issues that probably led to this that we could talk about, but I want to focus on one. <clears throat> the one that probably bugs me the most or that I'm most concerned about is that we have prophecy, right? Without checks and balances. And I believe in, in the gift of, of, of prophecy. I believe that people can speak things that the Lord might give them to share today. But I also see that in these circles, what we have is without, there's no accountability and there's no checks and balances and there's no, there's no willingness to deal with, with ultimately really deal biblically with someone who says, thus says the Lord, and then they're wrong. And that attitude has, I think, led in the church to some major problems. So if you're, here's the thing, if you're part of a group where you feel so let down, I just want you, want you to know your group's the minority. Like the groups where they were really believing these prophecies were all going to take place, like they're the minority. I'm charismatic, yet people in my own community looked with a lot of skepticism at, at the people who were up there um, prophesying these things. The, 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 the main leaders that were on YouTube and that are online who were saying all these things about the, the, the COVID and about Trump and about all that stuff. And we looked at it with a lot of skepticism, even though we believe in prophecy. And that's because I think in some circles we have checks and balances and we're willing to say, um, I'm going to evaluate that before I receive it. And in other circles, it's just, we got to keep the ball rolling. And that's the main issue I have and the main criticism I'm going to offer and way forward I'm going to offer for groups that feel like they've been affected a lot by this. There are in scripture, these like statements and teachings about limiting the effect of false prophecy. And it has to do with um, you know, having local accountability in your local church. And when you speak a prophecy, it's not just received and accepted, rather it's judged and tested by local leaders. Well, that is removed when you have an online community that is just a bunch of, a bunch of nodding heads all in agreement with each other, all falsely prophesying things together. And so what we need to do is restore a sense of like testing that goes on there. And maybe that just happens in your own life, or maybe it just happens in your own local community where you guys say, Hey, I have a local church and they have more influence in my life than some guy on YouTube. That includes Mike Winger, by the way, right? My local church has more direct influence in my life as far as like discipleship and accountability than some online person that I don't personally know, like Mike Winger or Jeremiah Johnson, right? Or, um, uh, what was his name? Tr uh, Tracy Cook or you name it. All the people that were on, um, Sid Roth's show over the last year, prophecy. you can go look at the Sid Roth's YouTube channel and you can see just countless prophecies and just doubling down, tripling down, quadrupling down on it. This is the word of the Lord. You have to trust it. And there's no testing. The testing is Sid Roth likes him. I don't know Sid Roth, but Sid Roth likes him. So it's probably, it's probably okay. I'll, I'll accept that. <clears throat> and then it leads to mass confusion. I want to add to this, the problem that I see that I think Bethel has added to the pro to this conundrum, to the disastrous stuff of 2020 because Bethel has taught, and I, I have this in my critique of Bethel from a few years ago, they teach a uncritical um, embracing of all prophecy as long as it's positive, whether or not it's from God. And I, I catalog this, I talk about it, I even share clips and stuff to show that this is the case. And one of my concerns back then years ago was, hey guys, this movement's growing. They're teaching an uncritical use of prophecy that doesn't concern itself with whether it's from God or not. It mostly is considered concerned with pushing a movement and a vibe so we feel like God is moving among us, whether or not it's legitimate. That's my assessment. And this is this is the attitude that leads to all of these guys being in agreement with each other apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. I think that Bethel's greatly contributed to the issues that are going on, even though they're not the direct cause. I don't think so. I think that they are part of the issue. And 
yeah, um, we can learn from this. The two things we get is everybody who falsely prophesied things in 2020, don't listen to them in 2021. Don't listen to them in 2022. Why would you ever listen to them again? I'm sorry, why? Why would you? To be nice? This isn't about being nice. This is about discerning truth from error. This is about knowing when God's speaking versus when he's not. These people don't know. They don't discern. And yet they're claiming to be in the place to tell you what God is saying outside of scripture. That's kind of a big deal. So I would say ignore those people. The second thing is to realize that the whole like movement of uncritically not evaluating, not being willing to call out error when, when, it, when it arrives, only worried about division. That's that Bethel. They're worried about division, but not really error as much. Um, that I think that that leads to the embracing of large scale false prophecy because you're embracing it on the small scale. So the people are all problematic. So anyways, that, that's kind of just uh, some things I wanted to share with you guys. And we'll go to your questions here uh, as soon as I get them um, in a minute. Hopefully you've, you've been loading them. Let me just make sure that we're getting them through here because I don't see any yet. Okay. I know they're being sent, but I'm just not getting them in my... Ah, there we are. Okay, I got it. Um, <clears throat> this this one's from Kenneth Kelly, um, who says, I'm writing a book with a Native American friend, and I want to help him come to Christ. He's respected of Christi respectful of Christianity, but terrible things have been done to him and his family by people professing to be Christians. His aunt was beat to death by a Catholic nun just to prove she had the authority. I want to share the gospel with him in a way that is accurate, but... At the same time, sensitive to what his people have endured. Any advice? Um, I mean, ideally, what you want to do is, like, I'm not, I, I mean, it sounds the craziest thing I've ever heard. Like a nun beat someone to death to prove she had the authority. This, it, It's like, did that really happen? But in a sense, it's irrelevant The for reaching this person. What really matters for reaching this person is that you separate Jesus from everyone who he sees as a Christian throughout his life. And you, and you recognize this, like maybe you'd start by saying, let me show you one of the letters to the churches in Revelation. Like, look at what Jesus says to some of his own followers. Like, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Like he says that in Revelation chapters two and three, look at some of the stuff Jesus says towards his followers. And then you can let him know, um, even G Jesus is upset by the misrepresentation that some of his followers give. And if you could start there, then you could try to separate the identity of Christ and the truth of Christianity from the behavior of supposed Christians. Another way to approach it is to, to, to ask this person, um, <clears throat> would you, would you judge, um, vegetarian behavior, you know, the, the standards of being a vegetarian, would you judge that by vegetarians who eat meat? Well, no, they might call themselves vegetarian, but they're not really vegetarian. So then they shouldn't be the example of what vegetarianism is. So you wouldn't judge Christianity by those who are violating its principles and calling themselves Christian. And so you just want to create a separation in his mind between their behavior and between actual Christianity, between them and Jesus. And then you can try to talk about the, the true Jesus, the real Jesus. Um, and yeah, so <clears throat> this is kind of like when people ask about the Crusades. Um, <clears throat> the, the, uh, the Roman Catholic church did endorse the crusades. Like if you're a Roman Catholic, you would have to defend the crusades probably. I mean, you could just say, oh, well, we make lots of mistakes. I mean, that sounds cute. If you're Catholic, like that might sound like a good defense to you. Like, well, we make mistakes, but to non-Catholics, you have to understand, like, you can't just hand wave all of the behaviors of the papacy over the centuries that way. Persecutions and wicked and really disgusting, immoral things that have happened. You need a better explanation than like, well, you know, we're not perfect. Um, 
Rather, and as a broad as a non-Catholic, it's easy for me to say, <clears throat> oh, their behavior here was just wrong. <laughs> they were just wrong. They were trying to establish an earthly kingdom instead of building God's ultimate um, kingdom, which is in the hearts of men and not just in the thrones of mankind until Jesus comes back anyway. So I wouldn't defend the Crusades. Now, you could try to defend them. Oh, well, they were a response to Islamic this and that, but I wouldn't even get into that big can of worms. I would just set it aside. So Kenneth, that would be my encouragement. Try to create that. It, specifically, let me let me share with you because I, I know I said it quickly, but look at what Jesus actually says to the um, to the churches. Let's look at um well we'll we'll look at the, the final church, Laodicea. <clears throat> he says, um, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For I say to you, I am, for you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Look at the description he gives of people who are, who are the representatives of Christ in Laodicea. Now imagine if you were living in Laodicea, and you saw those Christians, and you thought they represented Jesus, and Jesus himself is rebuking them. You, this is what you want your friend to recognize. So <clears throat> I would take them, consider taking them to that spot right there. Um, and next question is Dat Boy. Dat Boy has a question on Matthew nineteen twelve. He says, it talks about eunuchs from birth. Does that include intersex people? It seems to advise that eunuchs should not marry and should just serve God. Is that right? Let's look at the passage right now. Matthew nineteen twelve. Jesus, um, and to give you guys context, this is about the marriage and divorce stuff in Matthew 19. And then Jesus makes these statements about divorce that cause the disciples to say, well, it's better to not get married at all then. If I can't just divorce because I'm not happy, then I should just not get married at all. And Jesus is like, that's an option. <laughs> that's an option. Um, so I'll back up a little bit. They said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given meaning that's a hard thing and um, some people can do it and others aren't aren't going to do it <clears throat> for there are eunuchs and the word eunuch here is an is a, a word we don't use so often nowadays but um, generally speaking a eunuch is a term for a royal servant who would take care of like the king's women and they would do a castration on the eunuch this was the this was the general practice way 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 back in the day and that way he could not like sleep with or impregnate one of these women, which would confuse the whole royal line. Now, the Bible's not endorsing the process of people castrating themselves. It's talking about it. Okay. Discussing it's not the same as endorsing it. Okay. That's, that's not the, that's not the deal. But Jesus, he talks about this. He uses this, this cultural thing that everyone's aware of this whole day of idea of eunuchs at the time. Oh, and by the way, eunuchs, um, by Jesus's day, from what I've read, eunuchs may not have actually been castrated it may have been that they made themselves eunuchs by simply being abstinent and so abstinence um choosing to be single choosing to never be with a woman you'd also be called a eunuch even if you had not received castration back further you know go back to say daniel's time um back to you know go back 600 more years now you've got eunuchs that are actually being castrated at least that's what i recall off the top of my head from what i've read so there's eunuchs who've been so from birth what is that? And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. What is that? And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. Now, keeping in mind that eunuchs started as an actual castration and later turned into um, <clears throat> uh, that 
or simply abstinence, simply staying single. Jesus is speaking, I think, about both categories at the same time when he uses the term eunuch because they would all be called eunuchs, right? So who are those who've been, uh, well, let me, let me start at the end. Who has made themselves a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? Um, that could actually end up being um, uh, Paul, the, Paul the apostle later on, how he just ends up staying single if, if, his, if his wife had passed away or had left him and he decides to stay single. Um, 1 Corinthians 7 talks about, you know, it's better not to marry. And this would be making yourself a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't mean you actually castrate yourself. Thank God. And, um, and yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion on that. No, eunuch could just mean staying single. So those who've made themselves that way. What about been made eunuchs by men? Well, this could be either through the power of a, of a royal authority. They're like, you're going to be a eunuch. I declare you cannot, you know, ever be with a woman. Or they actually castrate the person. That could also be what's going on there. It could be either one. So then what are those who've been eunuchs from birth? Well, um, I think this is going to talk about a physical issue. So eunuch, not from birth, not an incident that happened after birth, but from birth. Well, nobody at birth is going, I choose by force of will to be single and to serve the Lord in my life. Like nobody's doing that at birth. Whereas later on, there's actually decisions that are being made. Here, the ones who are eunuchs by birth, at birth, have some sort of physical ailment that they get at the moment of their birth. There is discovered something's wrong. So this would be talking about um, anybody who does not have like proper working um, uh, organs for reproduction. That would be, I think, anybody in that category that they're not able to have intercourse because of their the way that they physically are. Would that include intersex people? Well, that intersex is a broad category, and 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 there are some people who are considered intersex but that they do have the ability to to have normal conjugal relations and there are others who do not so the ones who do not they would be eunuchs from birth i think now does that mean uh let's go to your question okay it seems to advise that eunuchs should not marry and should just serve god is that right it's, it's not so much adv advice here um i'm gonna try to be careful i don't go beyond the text <clears throat> it's describe it's not saying eunuchs who've been so from birth ought to stay you know, single and not procreate. In their culture, if you weren't able to physically procreate, no one's going to marry you because it's guaranteed that you cannot carry on your offspring. And it was considered a really big deal. Big difference between our culture and first century is that many people in our culture don't want to have kids or they want to put off having kids. And in their culture, it was like as important as the marriage itself was having children. And so if you couldn't, then that person's not going to marry you in the first place. It's just, you're never going to get married. It won't be an option. So I don't know if it's just advising that. Um, what if you are uh, intersex, but you want to have that intimate relationship to the best of your ability and get married? Is there anything wrong with that? No, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that Jesus is dealing with the cultural reality. It's just not going to happen for them. So he uses them in his analogy of who who might take that path. They don't have an option. So I would I would leave it open. If somebody was said that they had some sort of biological issue, but they still wanted to get married, I would completely endorse that. I think Jesus endorses that um, in other places because when Jesus talks about divorce, he doesn't... So there, um, I don't want to get too long on this question, but when Jesus gives reasons for divorce, I, get, I, I go over this in my three-hour video on divorce and remarriage, and you can look that up. Just put Mike Winger divorce and you'll see um, that big long video. But basically, Jesus, when he offers reasons for divorce, one of the things he does not offer, and he seems to refute in context, is the idea that you can divorce because someone's infertile. 
catch that. They did divorce because of infertility. That was a normal thing. Both Roman and Jewish society. In fact, Roman society at one point demanded it. And yet, between Jesus and Paul, there's no divorce for infertility. What does that mean? It means that the marriage is still valuable and binding, even if you can't have kids. That is that is that the marriage is more than just about procreation. That was something they were thinking in the first century. It's also something that the church, early church fathers, the who are not fathers of the church, really. It's just the name they give them. That's something they started teaching as well. And then the Catholic Church kind of pushed that even, even further in their traditions. But actually, marriage itself, just by itself, without any kids, is worthwhile. So I would never forbid an uh, intersex person from choosing to be married. Now, obviously, there's other issues of, well, but are you male or female? And can you determine that well enough to suggest you're going to get married? And these are areas that I'm not commenting on because... Every person who has a genetic issue is going to be in a different spot. And there isn't, there aren't always these clear-cut lines. I'm not going to be the one trying to draw those lines in broad ways. Because I don't know that you can. I think you have to take each person individually. Um, next question is from Yo Man Was Up, who says, Is Ruth 4, verses 5 through 6, typologically connected with Galatians 3, verses 23 through 25? We're going to look at these verses. Um, where Boaz replaces the guardian redeemer to, to redeem Ruth, Christ takes the place of the law to redeem the church. Hello from Hong Kong. Um, hello, Hong Kong. <laughs> good to hear from you. I wonder what time it is over there. It's probably not a good time <laughs> over there. It's It's got to be like really late, is it? I don't know. What time is it in Hong Kong? All right, let's look at Ruth. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and see if, if we think there's a connection here. going to give you my thoughts, and we'll kind of... We'll kind of look at it together here. Um, then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Let me catch you all up, in case you don't know. There is this thing about a kinsman redeemer. My cat is deciding to join us. I'm just... She's just... Doesn't know if she's going to jump away. Hold on. Oh, she's gone. See, she just, she thought about it. She sniffed the chair and decided it wasn't a good idea. All right. Well, um, the uh, the issue of a kinsman redeemer, um, it's, it's, it is, I do believe it's typological of Christ. The idea of, of a kinsman, someone who's related to you, who has the ability to like pay your debts to redeem you and bring you back into, into freedom is the idea, right? Boaz ends up being the kinsman redeemer. In the passage we just read, there's another guy in line who's a closer relative and he fails. He says, no, I won't do it. And he's, for his reasons, he's already married for one thing. He doesn't redeem it, redeem the land and redeem her because he'd have to make her a wife and he's already married. So he doesn't do it. Um, that could be typological the uh, theorizing here. This could be kind of like Adam. Adam's our closest redeemer who fails to redeem us. Our closest kinsman here, he, he brings us into bondage instead of delivering us. Um, that's, that's possible. Um, I don't know how strong that is. But Boaz being like Christ, I think that's very clear as we read through Ruth. Ruth is like a real historical thing. So it's not an allegory. I think it's a metaphor. I, I think that God uses real people to draw through their lives pictures of Jesus in the, in the Bible and in the history of mankind. And Boaz and Ruth are like this. Ruth being the, the redeemed, uh, that, that Christ redeems out of the earth, Boaz being the one who does the redeeming. And so I do think that's the case um, as you read through the whole book of Ruth, which is actually pretty short. Um, one of these days I should just do a, a, 
of a teaching on just Ruth. Just plow through it and do the typological teaching on Ruth. I don't know why I haven't done that. And then Galatians 3, 23 through 25 has this phrase. This is what you asked about. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest that the language of Galatians 3 doesn't lend itself towards the, towards the um, kinsman redeemer language. So this is more about um, law and um, the law is a guardian who is, is over us as a tutor, as though we're a youth and we need to be educated and taught. And we have all these rules over our lives, just like a child has a lot of rules and has a tutor over them, so to speak. And then at a certain age, they no longer need the tutor. They then grow up. And, and for us, what we get delivered is through growing up and we're coming into Christ. We, we, we belong to Christ. Christ comes, he delivers us, says, okay, you don't need the tutor anymore. This was all to lead you to me. So I would say this is not quite about the same language, the, the, the kinsman redeemer language. I would probably look for other passages in the New Testament that would relate the kinsman redeemer language. And I'm not off the top of my head thinking of one. So I'll just move forward. Um, spazzy Jazzy, um, the, uh, the, the female who is, who is a woman, as we've, as we've clarified over the past couple streams. Spazzy Jazzy, the inquisitive, lass, inquisitive lassie, that's her new name now, says, I have a Japanese friend who believes in a false Japanese religion, mainly because when she sprained her ankle, her mom prayed over it, and the doctor said it was healed. How can I effectively share that her religion is false after she experienced this convincing miracle? Um, I, I guess I, I'm just trying to put myself in your situation. Um, I would, I would want to go one of two routes. One is you're going to want to try to evaluate whether this even was a miracle or not. Like the other option is to just not even fight over that. Why fight over it being a miracle? Why not open the Bible and show that there are such things as false wonders, false signs that can be uh, exhibited? Let me, um, let me share with you from a passage where we're in right now, as I'm actually working my way through the gospel of Mark. Well, let's look at Mark 13, 22. This might be a verse to share with her. Jesus talking about the future says false Christs and false prophets will arise. And what will they do? They will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So there can be false signs, right? Um, Satan has power. He's not powerless. So every, every supernatural event is not an event from God, right? Think of the, the, another example. So that's Mark 13, 22. Another example would be the demoniac. Jesus, you know, he delivers a demoniac, but what's weird about the demoniac is that they tried to bind him in chains in the gospels. They tried to bind him in chains and he would break the chains with supernatural strength. They couldn't keep him bound. Why is that interesting? Because he had miraculous or supernatural abilities that you could have said, see, it's from God. But the truth is it just meant it wasn't from man. It just meant it wasn't only from man. So yeah, we, we have, um, another example would be Moses and the, 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 um, the people of Pharaoh. So the, the magicians of Pharaoh, when Moses cast down his stick and it becomes a serpent, it says they threw down their stick and it became a serpent as well. Now, the difference is that his serpent ate their serpents, and so his his was more powerful. So God's ultimately more powerful, but that doesn't mean there aren't any miracles or abilities um, amongst 
demonically inspired religions or cults or things like that. So yeah, we, we do believe in the supernatural. It's not like any miracle proves a religion true. We also want to look at the consistency they have if they claim to be Christian with the Bible. Is it consistent with scripture? And God himself does this. He's like, hey, hold to scripture. Jesus, what does he do? He's like, I'm warning you, these guys are going to come. And the thing to protect you from them is my words. So we have God's word that will guide us through evaluating miracles. That was That's probably what I would share with them. And I hope that you find it helpful as well. Um, so the... Um, this Monday, I want to announce real quick before I go to the next question. This Monday, I am going to be dealing with a very special study. I've been pre prepping for it for a couple of weeks now. Um, I'm doing a survey of different views of eschatology. So we're going to look at premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. We will also look at the, the ways that these views um, look at the book of Revelation. So with premillennial, we'll see how there's dispensational premillennial, and there's also a newer progressive dispensational premillennial, which is not progressive in the political sense or the religious sense. It's just, it, completely unrelated. Um, we'll also look at the preterist view of revelation that, um, that we see amongst post-millennials. We'll look at the idealist view of revelation that we see amongst amillennials. And so we're going to be looking at all that stuff that's coming um, Sunday night at my church and then Monday right here live with you. I hope you guys will make it out to that. If you're interested in getting a, um, a survey of different views of, of, of the millennium and of revelation, that doesn't involve demonizing anybody and and um, and doesn't involve me just trying to convince you that I'm right. So I, I'm really going to try to be charitable and offer a thorough treatment of these things, an introduction for those who only know one view. You've been raised with one view. You know it well. You don't really know other views. You'll be getting that. This will be Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which will be permanent on my channel after that. You can watch it whenever you want. All right, next question is Paul Redding who says, can you please comment on the Book of Life? how one is written into it or blotted out from it. Thanks. Um, I, so this is, to me, feels like a little bit of a semantical debate. Um, so yeah, the, the scripture talks about the, the book of life. And um, here, hold on. Here's, here's, a, here's the cat. Oh, and there she is. Hold on. I, 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 you guys have been asking. Look, you've been asking for the cat. Here's the cat. There she is. Yeah. Okay. So, enough. Okay. Moving away from the cat while she takes care of her showering. Um, the book of life that scripture does mention that we're, that, you know, people are blotted out. His name shall be blotted out of the book of life. And the reason why this sometimes comes up is it comes up in the debate over once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? But then it, it, I'll just share with you. There's two different sides that will that people will pick here. One side will say you're blotted out because you can, or over here, you're blotted out because you can lose your salvation. That's why you're blotted out of the book of life. It's proof that people can lose their salvation. And then on the other side, they'll say, no, everybody's written in. And then you're blotted out because you just never were really saved. You didn't receive Christ. And so the book of life has everyone's name in it because they're all alive. And then they end up being blotted out as a result of being judged um, and having re rejected Christ. I think my answer would be this is that our way of determining whether you can lose your salvation or not, which, which is a question I'm not taking sides on, at least not yet. I, I do want to cover this in a whole research project in the future. And then I will produce my content on it that will be hopefully biblical, solid, and very helpful for people. Um, but I, I think that we should not debate it on the issue of blotted out. I feel like this to me feels like, okay, this language is a little too nonspecific for us to hang a, our doctrine on. 
I think we need to look to other passages. I think the debate's going to focus on the warning passages in the book of Hebrews and other locations where there's warnings that you have to say that, okay, is this warning addressed to actual believers or to just people who look like believers? And then the next question is, do these people lose their salvation according to these warnings? Um, and then the next question is, okay, but is it just a hypothetical that could never really happen or is it something that's a real potential? And those are the kinds of questions we have to answer, which I'm not prepared to answer, unfortunately. Um, John Richardson says, is there a biblical basis for a Christian being able to release healing into the atmosphere? I hear this quite a bit at my church and I'm uneasy with it for some reason. John, I'm with you. Um, I don't know where it came from releasing healing into the atmosphere, but I know this heal uh, release and atmosphere become special terms in some churches. Now they probably would not like if you told Paul, the apostle, Paul, are you here to release healing into the atmosphere? I mean, assuming you spoke the Greek that would allow, <laughs> allow you to say this, are you going to release soter into the Uranus or something? Um, I think Paul would just look at you sideways. Like he'd be like, what are you talking about? You know, like this is strange terminology. I don't I don't see it in scripture. I don't think it's there. I think that what's happened is people in these movements realize that there are there's like an attitude, there's like a vibe that they're going for. Um Benny Hinn talks about this. Benny Hinn, who I consider a a great example of a really bad example. Um he talks about this, how he's more interested in controlling the atmosphere or the attitude of the room than he is anything else. Um, I, I saw him talking about, he, he even said, I shouldn't tell you these secrets, but he tells us his secrets about how he controls who gets on the front row. And he only puts people on the front row at his crusades and his, his events and stuff who are like really ecstatic people who are really just totally sold. Like they're just like, like mindlessly absorbing everything he says and cheering him on and believing everything he says, no matter what. Like that's, that's what he wants in the front row. And then this is going to create an atmosphere, especially for the cameras, right? where it looks like it's just everything's everything's flowing. All of those things are more about crowd control than they are, I think, spiritual work in our hearts. When someone says they're releasing healing into the atmosphere, it doesn't mean anything to me. Um, it just doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't mean that they're apostate. It doesn't mean they're Benny Hinn. You don't have to be Benny Hinn to say something that I think is weird or doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Uh, we do have in scripture at one point where it says that the, the power of the Lord was present to heal. Um, let me see if I can find this verse real quick. Um, Luke 5.17. Let's, let's go there. And I'll show you this. This is probably the closest thing that comes to mind. On one of those days, as this is Jesus, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men who were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in, the, in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in. And it talks about the, the paralytic. But it has this phrase, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Um, some of them would actually say the power of the Lord was present to heal. But the thing is that the power of the Lord is in the atmosphere. It's, it's, in, it's in Christ. It's in Christ. Okay. And he doesn't release healing into the atmosphere. This, to me, strikes me as a very vague thing because I just want the crowd... Like when Jesus healed people, he healed specific people. You're sick, you get healed, you're sick, you get healed. A lot of these healing gatherings, what we have are vague sort of healing. There's this healing in the room and they call out stuff like somebody with like a back issue, which probably represents like 
11% of the audience and you're getting healed right now, which one of them it is, who knows? It's very vague. It's very much atmospheric instead of person to person, which is more what I see in the text of scripture. Um, so yeah, atmosphere. I would suggest that the problem there is we're making healing very vague and there's no way to confirm when it's happening and there's no way to disconfirm it either at that point. And that ends up being all about creating a movement, which is exactly what I was worried about in my first uh, question in the video. Um, Mark, oh, by the way, John, I wouldn't leave your church over. I, I, I would just have discernment and then seek to have the biggest biggest blessing you can have guiding people towards truth, not just calling out problems, but pointing people towards truth. Um, God bless you and give you wisdom in that. Mark H says, what is the leaven of Herod? It seems Herod was intrigued by John, even though John was against his unlawful marriage and Herod did what people thought instead of God's law. What is the leaven of Herod, you ask? So I, I actually taught a study where I dealt with the leaven of Herod and of the Pharisees, and it wasn't too long ago in the Mark series. Um, I guess it was too long ago. It was it was part 28 in the Mark series. I'm looking at my notes right now. And um, let me see if I can pull up on my notes what my thoughts were on that, because I'd rather share what I thought after a long, um, many hours of study than just what's on the top of my head here. Um, okay, so there's the leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees. This is in Mark chapter, um, what chapter is this? I'll find it for you in just a second. <clears throat> and the, um, the passage says there's leaven of Herod and the, yeah, Mark eight fifteen. There it is. The leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees, because it's and the, um, leaven of, it looks like there's two different types of leaven here. So the leaven of the Pharisees isn't like that hard to identify. We could talk about their doctrines and their teachings, but what is the leaven of Herod? And if it's a different leaven, then what is it? Um, so here's my quick survey of what we learned from about Herod. Herod was a king who was kind of illegitimate. He was a very much a compromised and wicked king. He had status as a uh, ruler of the Jews kind of, he called himself king. He wasn't like legitimately considered a king, but he did call himself king and he made others call himself that. It's kind of complicated politically for them back then. But yeah, so he's like a leader of the Jews, kind of like a king. He has status, but he's very ungodly. This could be a warning against ungodly ambition in our hearts um, to, to want to be respected and to want to be approved of by the world and to try to like find this, this thing where you could try to like be a representative of God and sort of get the approval of the world at the same time. Um, we are not generally respected as Christians, not that we never will be, but we cannot let it be a desire in our hearts. That would be 11. That would be a danger there to be lifting ourselves up and our reputation at the cost of representing Christ. There's a possible New Testament connection with 1 Corinthians 5, 8. And it says here, speaking of leaven, let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, I mean, Herod was malicious and evil. And so it could just be like a, like the Pharisees are, a, are about this false religion, man-made traditions and self-righteousness. Herod might be about just sin, just plain old wickedness and evil, yielding yourself over to ungodliness in your life. That here, the the, um, the leaven of Herod could, could partly represent things like indulging more and more in ungodly behaviors in our lives. That could be something that's going on there. 
So there's more in my Mark series part 28 where I talk about the leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees in much greater detail. And you're welcome to check that out. Let's go to the next question, which is from Deanna Malilo or Malio, who says, as a youth leader, my students share these new age things they they learn to do on TikTok. That sounds pretty terrible. <laughs> so they're learning new age, new age things to do on TikTok. And one of them sounds like astral projection. How do we talk about this with them without sounding crazy? Um, I'm going to reference you to uh, a gentleman by the name of, I'll give you two names, um, who's online on YouTube who could probably help you a lot more than I can. So Doreen Virtue was a former new age practitioner leader. She was a guru in the new age movement, like very well known, very, very um, famous. And she came to Christ, she's she's turned from it all, but she's often equipping and answering these things. So you might find some videos of hers that you could share. And um, the other one is the YouTube channel Reasons for Jesus. And Reasons for Jesus has another former New Ager who has turned and followed Jesus Christ and he's made tons of videos. He talks about astral projection. I know specifically he deals with astral projection. Go find those guys. Those are brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't agree on everything, but we agree on the essentials. And... Um, and you're going to find on Reasons for Jesus in particular, you're going to find um, stuff I know he has videos just on astral projection. So check that out, Deanna. That'll that'll help you out. How do you talk to them about it without sounding crazy? I, I think that you just, first you stay calm and you realize that <clears throat> with kids, especially that age, you're, you're, you're a youth leader, you're not just trying to tell them, hey, that's wrong, don't do it. I mean, there's an element of that. You can say, this is wrong, but let me walk you through it. I want you to understand why. It, they really need to know what's wrong with it. So... First, equip yourself, find out what's what's the, de the deal with these things, um, and then you can go on to give them those things, equip them with that same knowledge and information. It's not enough to say, that's poisonous. You really want to tell them what poison it is, like what's the problem there. At least that's my, my thought, because you want them to not just stay away from it. You want them to see it for what it is, and then they can have an impact in, in the lives of others. Um, Tony... Tony Oshikanlu says, <clears throat> why should we care about false doctrine and teaching like the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement? Does believing in such compromise one's salvation? If not, why care at all? So Tony, this is a good question. Um, how much should I make a big deal about things like false teachings? Uh, well, let me, let me give you an example from this, just this last few months, right? There was a whole group of people that were falsely prophesying they, they prophesied falsely. Are they false prophets? Are, are they, anyway, that's another debate. It seems irrelevant to me. They, you can't trust them. They say they talk from God and they don't. That's all I need to know. But, um, but at any rate, there's, there's an issue there that was like an in-house issue, right? Because they weren't preaching a different Jesus. They weren't preaching a different gospel to my knowledge. But you know what it did? It, it's led to now a lot of people who were really part of their movement to be questioning the truth of Christianity. Because they thought that the reliability of God depended on the reliability of these knuckleheads who arrogantly spoke out in his name falsely. They really did. And, and if not for people like myself or others coming around going, hey guys, that was just them. And dealing with that error, this would lead people eventually to even, some of them to apostatize, to leave, to leave the faith or to continue in all kinds of weird errors and conspiracy theories. Like they have to prove that Trump really is still president and stuff like that. That's... It's just a waste of time, guys. Just a waste of time. Um, why should I care about the prosperity gospel and these other things? Let me give you another reason. The New Testament does. It talks about it in detail. Like 
The New Testament doesn't just give us the gospel of Christ. It like read the epistles and read all the issues that Paul deals with with Timothy. He talks about like requirements for leadership. He talks about like the, the, how to deal with widows and things like that for their local fellowship. He he talks about all kinds of issues that are way beyond just the bare gospel. So for me personally, anytime someone's like, if it's not the gospel, I don't need to worry about it. Then I just I want them to never eat, never prepare a meal, don't sleep because sleeping's not the gospel. Don't talk to anybody about anything that's not the gospel. If they if they have someone come up to them and ask them directions, do you know where the gas station is? All you can do is tell them the gospel. You can't even give them directions to the gas station because that's not the gospel. Why should we care? Like it just sounds that silly to me, to be honest, Tony. Um, and why should we care about false doctrine and teaching? Because God cares about it a whole lot. Many of the complaints Jesus has against the Pharisees even aren't all gospel issues, right? There are other issues as well. So if you're going to be biblical, if you're going to be like the apostles, you're going to care about those things. Question number 11. Sephora Ba says, hi, Pastor Mike. Thanks. Your channel is so inspiring. Good. I'm glad it's inspiring to you. It's it's definitely uh, blows me away that that it's even there. <laughs> in Romans 8:34, why is Jesus still interceding for the elect since they're already saved? Let's see. Romans 8:34. Good question. So there's different kinds of intercession. Um let's let's uh let's look at this. So we, we have the, the spirit he intercedes for us that this has to do with um communicating our hearts to God in prayer. This is, this is about a relational intercession of prayer. But Jesus' intercession is different. In verse 34, it says, Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is it the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, this intercession is directly related to condemnation. So I'm not condemned. This isn't just about bringing my prayers to God. That, that's something I pray in his name, but through the Spirit. But this is about salvation and avoiding condemnation. And why is that? It's because Jesus is at the right hand of God, constantly interceding for me. Now, I don't think this means that he's like, he's, he's like, they're actually physically pleading like, oh, please forgive them, Father. I don't think that's the case at all. I think this relates to, let me give you another passage, John 2, 1. John 2, 1 John 2, 1. Um, he says, my little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. See, there's Jesus again. He's pictured as being right there with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is. And, and so he's standing there. He, oh, he, he's interceding. He's my advocate. He's the one who's who's making it so that even when I still fail, even though I still fail, I'm going to be okay before God because Jesus is standing there and he's righteous. And how does it work? He's the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So this intercession is, is not Jesus making a new payment, right? Um, it's rather his constant existence is a testimony that my sins have been forgiven. His present in a human body that bears the scars of my, of my sin, right? Of the judgment of my sin. That body that died and then rose again and then is at the right hand of God, that his existence is a constant testimony, a proclamation that I am right with God because of his righteousness. So that's his intercession. He not only saves me, he maintains my salvation through his righteous intercession or just his existence as my propitiation, according to uh, 1 John 2.1 and 2.2. That would be my way of understanding that. Um, Darcy777, 
In other words, it's it's a constant thing. Sorry, let me just add this. It's a constant thing. Jesus is always there interceding, not like, oh, I lose it and I get it back. I lose it and I get it back. No, no, he's just constantly there, always making the way for me to come to God. Um, okay, number 12, Darcy777 says, do you believe Solomon was saved seeing as he died worshiping false gods? Oh man, that is a tough, tough, tough question. Um, I don't know how he died. Maybe you do. Maybe maybe you've picked up on something I missed in scripture. I know that his his heart was led astray when he married all these women. But I also know, as I read Ecclesiastes, that he seems to have had some later reflection upon all of that stuff. Um, and so, at the if you read Ecclesiastes, it's like he's already gone through all the process of, of doing all those things, many things, many mistakes, many sinful things. And then, at the end, he's like, it's all vanity, it's all nothing. So, just worship God, serve God, just know God because he's going to bring everything into judgment. So you get the idea at the end of Ecclesiastes, at least I do, that Solomon had come to a different place by the end of his life. At least I hope that's the case. I don't know if I could prove it, but I think it might be implied there. So yeah, um, scripture does say that he married these women and they led his hearts astray to false gods. This is the very warning against doing it was that. So there's that, but I, um, yeah, that's my, my opinion. I could be wrong. Lord knows. Number 13, um, Hudson Hancock says, I preach with a stutter. Sometimes it can be very discouraging. I know God uses it still, but any advice for me, both practical and biblical, it tends to be worse when I'm nervous or tense. Um, well, I don't know anything about overcoming stutters, but I do recommend the following. Don't deal with a stutter, deal with the nervousness. And part of the nervousness is you coming to terms with this is the way you are and that's if God's going to here's here's how I like to put it <laughs> I was once asked to teach for my pastor um in the sanctuary years ago and I was very nervous very nervous about it you know usually I teach youth ministry anytime I teach in a new environment I get nervous that's the way I am and um after I'm accustomed to it I've done it a bunch of times I'm a lot better but as far as nerves go but I went through this interesting experience where as I was preparing to teach, I was like, here's what I want to teach. Here's what I think is needful and helpful for the body. Here's what I think the scripture is saying. But I also felt like there were all these expectations because I'm stepping into another man's pulpit. And me and my, my own pastor are very different teachers, very different, you know. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not going to bend over to try to become something that I think is more acceptable. I'm just going to teach the best I can with the skills I've got. And here's the beautiful freeing thing that I would give to you, Hudson. <laughs> I thought, and if they never ask me to do it again, then I don't have to be stuck in this thing where I'm pretending and pretending and pretending in order to try to be in a pulpit that I don't belong in. Instead, I'll be totally genuine, just me trying to teach the best I can. And if people like it, don't like it, whatever. Either, either I get asked to do it again and I get to be genuine and get to be ministering in purity and in integrity and honesty without any sort of acting. Or I just don't get asked to do it again, in which case I don't have to go through all this stress anymore. And I thought that this was very liberating for me, accepting the idea that I just, maybe I just won't keep doing this. That'd be fine. I'm, Lord, I want your will. I don't want anything I have to fabricate. So Hudson, my encouragement is accept the way that you are, do the best you can the way that you are. And if people don't want you to do it again, then they won't ask you. There you go. It's very liberating. You're like, yeah. Oh, you guys don't like my stutter? You can't, you can't learn because I stutter? Okay, well then don't ask me to teach again. That saves me time and energy. You know? <laughs> I'll just serve God in other ways. That's fine. And that might help your nervousness a bit. Or maybe I'm just weird. Certainly helps mine. I'm going to be the way I really am. 
and it's either going to be it's going to work or it's not going to work and i'm not going to worry about it because um, if it doesn't work i'll just serve god some other way uh, yeah all right brie herb says um oh obviously hudson <laughs> last thoughts obviously a stutter doesn't disqualify you from serving the lord not by any any way shape or form you can also look at getting voice coaches that might help you with the stutter it may help in other ways that i don't know how i'm just talking about the nervousness Moses appears to have had a stutter and the Lord still used him. Uh, Jeremiah thought, you know, who am I? I, I, I don't, I don't know how to talk well. <laughs> and, um, uh, Paul was apparently criticized by some cause he didn't have the rhetorical training that some had. They were big on rhetoric back at the time. Not that he wasn't a good speaker, but it wasn't rhetorical the way they liked. And, um, yeah, you just serve God, be faithful. That's all you need to do. Bree Herb says, if you could visit any one moment in both the Old and New Testament, what would it be? And how do you know when you're ready to disciple others? Um, all right, two questions here. First, if I could visit any moment in the Old and New Testament, what would it be? In the Old Testament, um, the first thing that comes to mind, I might change my mind tomorrow, is um, the creation of Adam and Eve. Yeah, there you go. I just want to watch. <laughs> I just want to see. Wow, you know. Um, then in the new Testament, it would be when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with the disciples and he was un, un, unpacking the scriptures for them, showing them how all of the scripture taught of the Messiah. I just want to sit in and listen. Now, the problem of course, with this is that I don't actually speak any of the languages they were speaking back then. So I would have to not only have time travel, I'd have to supernaturally have the Lord give me the ability to understand them. Um, but you know, we're, we're, we're playing a, a, a what if game. So. Um, the next thing you said is, how do you know when you're ready to disciple others? I would say, Brie, um, discipleship is not, you can disciple others in a sense where you're like, I'm your discipler. I'm like your spiritual guider and, and, and all of these, I'm a leader to you. But you can also disciple others in other ways where you just piecemeal, you just help them, you just assist them. And maybe they don't see you as this great leader. They just see you as a brother who's, or a sister who's helping them in their, in their walk with Christ. So in that sense, everyone can disciple right now. Right, because you can always encourage people and help them and, and and all that sort of thing. How do you? What's the difference between being sort of like the alongside brotherly, sisterly help versus the sort of leader where you're like, basically, you're giving them stronger types of advice, you're giving them more guidance in their life. I am. Um, it, it's it's probably not like a real cut and dry thing. It's just the more you serve the Lord, the more experiences you go through, the more times you've dealt with people, the better you get at it. The biggest advice I would give if you're looked at as a leader to somebody is to not overstep your bounds as a leader, to not be overbearing and controlling and realize that you're, you're trying to raise up other leaders. You're not just trying to establish your role as a leader in that person's life. And this is something that I think um, we, we do tend to focus more on our role as a leader than we do raising up others to be self-sufficient and to be leaders themselves. And... Um, I've fallen into that trap. So I'm just speaking from personal experience there. But nothing there's nothing to keep you from just blessing somebody. You can teach them something, share something with them. Doesn't mean you're like making yourself better than them. You're just trying to be, bring, bring a blessing. Number 15, Olivia Hartland says, could you clarify the difference between forgiveness and salvation? Um, well, I would just say forgiveness is about your sins no longer being held against you, right? Like I'm forgiven. It's I have specific moral offenses against in this case, God, we're talking about God and God forgives me. I'm forgiven. I'm no longer experiencing those, uh, the, um, the guilt, uh, before God, like judicially, I'm not going to be 
punished for these things. But salvation is more than that because salvation encompasses a whole lot of other ideas. So salvation involves forgiveness, but it also involves things like adoption. I'm adopted as a child of God. It also involves things like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Like, that's not just forgiveness. There's more than that, right? I'm given a relationship with God, with him in me through the Holy Spirit. So this is amazing. This is more than just forgiveness. I'm also given a future, inheritance, eternal life. That's more than just forgiveness, right? I'm, I'm given eternal life. So salvation is like all of the blessings that come in Christ. At least that's what I think of when I think of salvation. When we do say the doctrine of salvation, we often mean like how we get saved, but we're not always talking about the results of salvation. That's what I'm speaking of here. And how we get saved, how it in involves very much, it begins with the idea of forgiveness, right? Because it's the judgment of God that, that we move from to his uh, love and embrace and all the benefits of salvation. There's a couple thoughts on that. Omar Barr says, Brother Mike, how would someone test a prophecy until it had or haven't come to pass, including, come to pass, including you for the whole Trump prophecies? Uh, how would I test it? Okay, when someone gives you a prophecy and you don't have any idea whether it's gonna happen or not, you, you first establish the track record of the person giving it. Do I already have reason to trust this person? And you might have that on a scale of one to a hundred, right? Maybe my trust for them is incredibly high because this person has been so reliable and, and accurate. Not once in a blue moon. Everybody can be right. Everybody can guess, you know, broken clock is right twice a day, right? So everybody can get stuff right. Um, some people boasted, well, I predicted the first Trump, you know, victory. Well, it was like somebody was going to win. There's <laughs> like two candidates, you know, like, you know, someone's going to win. In this case, getting things wrong is more important than getting things right, right? So when you're trying to validate a, a prophet or someone who's speaking on behalf of God, if they get things wrong, that's a bigger deal than when they got stuff right. Because you can you can be not be a prophet and just guess things right. But when you get it wrong, it proves that what you have is not from God. So any error is a very big deal. I think it's a very big deal. Anytime someone gets something wrong, I think we should all consider that the case. Um, but say they prophesy something and you don't know if it's going to come to pass or not. You're waiting on it. Well, if you don't have a solid track record, then you don't have to take action on this supposed prophecy. Right? You're just like, Lord, you know me. You know I'm going to obey you and go where you want me to go. But here's a source I haven't vetted. Here's a person I don't know. I don't know if I should trust their word or not. Lord, I will go where you say. But I don't know. I don't know about them. So please speak that to me in some other fashion, if that's something you want me to do. And I would wait. And unless I have good reason to think it's from God, I'm not going to act like it is. So yeah, there's my thought. Now, someone having a large movement online, some total stranger with a YouTube video that's like, "God told me this," and then you click, and they're like giving you a message supposedly from God, and you have to answer it and live according to it. That means almost nothing to me. I don't know you. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I don't know you, and I'm not really going to be moved by that unless I have some secondary reason to be moved by that. If the Lord, if I feel like the Holy Spirit's really leading me in that, which is a very rare event. So there's a couple thoughts. Um, Bob Satellite says, I constantly sin. I've prayed, struggled, and fought to stay on the narrow path. I can't seem to stop sinning. The guilt is still there, but there's no change. Can a heart be too cold to change? I'm going to share something with you, Bob, that I think might be hard for you to hear, not because it's rude or something but because it, you're having a hard time believing it right now. This is what scripture says, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand on this. I'm going to stand on what the Bible says about your situation. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You know what this means? You and me both, sins that you struggle with every single day 
over and over again that you feel like you don't have power to overcome, that when the decision point comes, you always make the bad decision. Those things, that's normal temptation. Then it goes on and says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. I'm tempted beyond my ability. I, I feel like I can't help it. I have to sin. I have no choice. I have to sin. I, it's, it's out of my hands. And when you pray about it, you don't even, you, you even pray like that's true because you're like, Lord, stop me. Lord, change me. Lord, fix my heart. Lord, keep my behavior. Don't let me do this again. And it's all on him. All my prayers are putting it on God. God, it's all on you. It's all on you. And scripture is saying that this is wrong, that actually God's already working. You're not being tempted beyond your ability. You just keep choosing sin. Right? You just keep choosing sin. But with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And that word escape, it doesn't mean, it basically it means this. It means that you'll escape sin, though you will still be tempted. But this is, but this means that God's already at work in my temptation and that I'm just deciding to do it again. Bob? B-O-B, satellite, actually, I don't know what your real name is, but um, I'll call you Bob. Um, you're in the same spot as me. The things that, that I struggle with over and over and over again as a Christian, I have a choice and I choose to sin. And even in my prayers, when I'm like, Lord, change my heart, change my heart, change my heart. There's something about that that feels a little bit off because I'm sort of putting it all on him. Um, I once heard... Um, a pastor, um, who was it? Um, oh, I forget. Anyways, he was saying um, people think that they they can't help it. They can't help but sin. And let's say that you're you're struggling with the issue of looking at pornographic images on your phone, and you're like looking those up, and you're thinking to yourself, I can't help it. I just I have no control. I just once the temptation comes, I can't help it. I have to do it. What if your wife, your daughter, your mom, your friend, your brother walked into the room right then? Would you stop? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, I would stop. Oh, so you do have choice, right? Because you're not uncontrollably continuing. What if someone broke into your house at that point, put a gun to your head, and they said, if you continue doing that right now, I'm going to pull the trigger and kill you. I guarantee you would stop. You do have choice. You're just used to making a very certain choice over and over again. It does feel like slavery. It does feel like bondage. And Jesus uses those terms to describe it. But the deliverance from that slavery and bondage has already been provided in Jesus. You are, you are already able to resist this sin if you're a Christian. God is not allowing you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He has provided with you, within you even, that ability and resist, held back the temptation so that you can say no. Bob, you got to start believing that. I would memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and read it and read it and memorize it and share it with yourself and then make those extreme, extreme behavioral changes at the moment of temptation. The last advice I give, and I give to everybody who's dealing with temptation, is deal with it early on. Don't deal with it late. Deal with temptation at its first inkling, at the first hint of temptation. That's where you resist. If you do not resist, it becomes much, much worse. Um, there you go. That's my thoughts. Drifter2003, number 18, says, In Hosea, God sends a message through Hosea and the names of his children. His family has to live with their children names named things like not loved. Does Hosea deserve this? Is this a type of Christ bearing others' burdens? Is there more beyond the simple meaning of your child will give will, will be given a horrible name to get the attention of Israel? Thanks. So Hosea was publicly known as a prophet. And so his children having these names, it's 
<clears throat> I don't think it's going to be like um, like kids in school nowadays where they go off to public school and then they're made fun of um, because of their name. But but even now, like, you know, if your name is Caleb, sorry, guys, but your name means dog. OK, <laughs> like, so you're a dog. Like, that's just what Caleb means. Um, it's, it, you know, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal um, that his his kid had a name that meant not loved if people know his dad is a prophet and know that this is a message to israel that um that there's a problem in their love relationship with god so yeah now i think that drifter i think you've nailed it with is he a type of christ bearing others burdens yeah i think that the prophets regularly bear they bear suffering um on behalf of the people and that that is a picture of christ i think the best prophet for this is not hosea it's probably well maybe hosea it, it, maybe it's a tie because hosea actually gets married and then the woman leaves him and this is all a picture of what what god's going through with israel um and so yeah there's a picture there of how how christ will come and actually live out the suffering that we caused but also ezekiel ezekiel who regularly in, in fact He's the only prophet of whom it's actually said he will bear the iniquity of Israel. And he's the only prophet who was a priest as well. And Jesus is a priest as well as prophet and king. So Ezekiel's like this amazing example. And Ezekiel, like, you know, when, when Israel's going to get judged, he lays on one side for, I can't remember how many days, um, as a picture of the besieging of Israel. And he has to lay there and prophesy laying, prophesy, laying on the ground like that uncomfortably. He has to eat nasty, unclean food in order to tell Israel they'll be eating unclean food. And he has to go through all the things that they're going to go through. Um, this is a picture of Christ going through it all for us. I think that that's the case. If you're worried about the kid being made fun of and that kind of thing, I think that we're just being overly sensitive. Um, I know I don't like bullies any more than you, but um, I, I think that we're just missing the point because we'll put it this way. The way we are nowadays, sometimes we overreact to some things and underreact to others. We watch a movie 50 people get murdered and then a cat gets killed and we're more upset about the animal than we are about the people because we're just, our moral compasses are a little bit off, right? Like, don't be killing cats. I love cats. But the point is we just lose focus because some things we get triggered to and other things we ignore. That'd be my two cents. Adriano says, what to do when tempted with with lust online? Um, I watch it to deal with stress Oh, this is this is this is key. Everybody listen to what Adriano has shared here because I think that a lot of people identify with it. I watch it to deal with stress and struggle to stop this week without it. I repent and believe the gospel, but feel like my house is built on sand. Adriano, I don't know you. I only know literally two sentences, three sentences that you wrote. So I can't give you personalized, like, here's insight into your heart. But I can talk and say that a lot of people are dealing with the same thing you're talking about. I watch it to deal with stress. In that case, stress is temptation. Stress presents you, you know, when when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, it was when he was hungry. And what did he tempt him with? Make food out of these rocks. And so the enemy wants to use the stresses and the difficulties and the things you feel you're lacking to try to lead you towards sin. This is the normal temptation we face. All you can do is resist and say no. Like, like the answer here is the same as the answer I gave earlier to Bob. It's it's just, Adriano, is you just, you don't. You just don't. Stop believing the lie that you have to do this. Stop believing the lie that it helps. It doesn't really help. Your your life is experiencing way more stress because of the use of behaviors than if you wouldn't weren't doing them at all. Like, that's true. I mean, there's no way that this is, you're like, my life is so stress-free because I look at lustful images. Like, nobody's really saying that. Like, not with integrity. 
when we sin, it's going to cause more stress and strain. Here you're, you're fearful now. Your whole house is built on sand that there's something wrong salvifically in your life. What I'm saying is, this is obviously not a solution to anything. It's just a sinful urge, temptation, habit that is engaged in. And all I can encourage you to do is run to Jesus, trust in Christ, when, read Romans 7 and read on into Romans 8. Paul talks about the struggle of the flesh and he and, and he, he says exactly what you feel. Uh, the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. The things I, I want to do, that's what I don't do. Oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer is Jesus. Thank God for Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he talked about walking in the spirit. So that walking in the spirit thing is absolutely available to every Christian. doesn't mean we will live without sin, like it's some sort of sinless level that we achieve some sort of like weird thing but it is absolutely available to you and that my only counsel to you is is go back to that believe what god has said about your temptation and then just deny yourself like you just have to deny yourself you'd be like there's things i i want like my flesh wants i'm just gonna say no um it's simple doesn't mean it's easy but it is simple Dragonfist900 says, and this is the last question for today. I'm a biblical studies major with an end goal of being an online youth pastor. Do you have any advice about interpreting scriptures, the scriptures faithfully for the next generation? Uh, Dragonfist, my encouragement to you is be involved in youth in real life so that you don't, because oftentimes in my view, there's what older people think about youth and it's like, it's like you're watching, like you remember watching those teen movies, you know, movies that were made for teenagers, they're kids in high school. And there's like, there's the cool kid and there's the nerdy kids. And then there's like the depressed kid. And there's, a, and you have these like sort of stereotypes of youth that don't, they touch reality, but they're not real. They're not real. It's better if you actually know students, like you actually engage with them and interact with them on a regular basis. And then you realize like, I don't have to be afraid of what they think of me. I don't have to be worried about this and that. I don't have to be trying to entertain them or trying to make them think I'm cool. I'm just going to bring truth and share truth with them in a way that connects to the issues they're going through, in a way that answers um, answers their questions, helps them come up with questions that need to be answered. Uh, like you just need to interact with youth in order to be able to know how to interact with them in an online way. You should be an online youth pastor. That means you'll have less actual face-to-face -face interaction with youth. So that's the thing you would, you would need the most interact with youth, get involved with them, talk to them, find out where they're at. Um, yeah, just try to create relationship. And as a youth pastor, a lot of the time I'd spend just spending time with youth, just hanging with them, talking with them, goofing off. And that would inform me. Then when I taught, I knew where they were at. So my teaching would be relevant because I know them. So that's my advice to you. Um, interpreting the scriptures faithfully for the next generation. Um, one other piece of advice I'll give is this. Um, a lot of youth today have a rather skeptical view of things. Not that, not exactly unbelieving, but a rather skeptical view. So dealing with apologetics and answering tough questions related to Christianity is very important. For our youth ministry, we we watched these like those uh, Dr. Craig videos. That's a YouTube channel, Dr. Craig videos, where, where they have like these short um, artistic videos that are about presenting arguments for God's existence. And then I played like an atheist video where this atheist was trying to refute the argument for God's existence. And then I let the students tell me what was wrong with it. And like things like that, that was engaging. That was stuff that they like are more likely to remember and have an impact in them. I think that for students, it helps to find the areas where Christianity is in conflict with the culture. And then don't just tell them the culture's wrong. Show them. Show them using the research and the reasoning 
why the biblical worldview is correct. And, and then the world isn't just like evil and wrong, right? They're lost on this issue. And that's the heart you want them to be able to have. So I think that we have to build the case for the Christian faith. We have to build the case for our theology. And a great thing to do with youth is always compare it to bad theology, compare it to bad teaching, compare it to unbelieving things. And when you're comparing them, it tends to get the youth interested more. I mean, it does it for adults too, right? Like if I'm talking, when I talk about the Trinity, I have a video on the Trinity. I start the whole thing by answering a bunch of questions from skeptical non-Trinitarian groups like Jehovah's Witnesses. And then I do a teaching on the Trinity and then I use those that teaching to answer those questions. That's something I would do with the youth. I, I think that when we, when we respond to those areas of conflict, it tends to draw more attention from the students. That's helpful. Realize that they're not just... Um, they're not raised with the same culture and environment that you probably were. So you can't assume as much when you're talking to them. You have to like, like, um, like let's say in America, um, the issue of capitalism. I think in general, young people are much more favorable to capitalism than say like the generation before me. My generation is kind of in the middle as far as their attitude towards it. And excuse me, favorable. I mean, the generation before me is like capitalism's the way that the young generation is like, Hey, socialism sounds pretty good. Like you're going to pay all my bills. Right. And then, and then my generation is a little bit more in the middle. Um, so if you talk to them, like from your perspectives on capitalism as an older person, and they're the younger person, they don't even share those perspectives, whether you're right or wrong, if you're just talking past them, it's like you're speaking a language they don't understand. If you talk to them, like they have to believe the Bible because of course you have to believe the Bible. That's it. That's the whole reason and they're not feeling that way, then it's just going to be talking past them. But if you give them evidence and arguments and reasoning and you interact with non-believing things, then I feel like it's very powerful. Um, anyway, I could talk for hours about youth and strategies and stuff, whether whether I'm good or bad at it, I could keep going and going. Um, so thank you guys for listening. I'll see you hopefully Monday as I'll talk about different views of eschatology, Christian views, surveying different Christian views, including one view that's just downright heretical. We'll talk about that view as well, that full preterism or complete preterism or hyper preterism. We'll talk about that too. And all this stuff will be coming soon. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for those of you who just helped push the channel up to 200,000 subscribers. It's pretty exciting. It's pretty neat. Celebrating with my uh, really fat laden coffee here today and uh, going out to dinner with my wife tonight. And I might get lobster for the first time in like five years. <laughs> just for fun. All right. Thank you. God bless you.